This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia. And after a couple solo episodes over the holidays, I am now back to guest programming and I'm very excited about this guest. This is a guest I've been trying to get on the show for a while. Uh, she was open to it and we finally figured out a time to do it. Uh, her name is Chloe Valdery. Chloe is a writer and a cultural critic. Her writing can be found in publications like the New York Times and the Atlantic, I believe, uh, all over the place. It's great. Read it. Uh, find her on Twitter. I've been following on there for a while. She's brilliant. And our conversation was great. Um, I had a bunch of things I wanted to talk to her about. Uh, everything from identity politics to the power of narrative to our need to make meaning out of chaos. These are all things that she is interested in that I am also interested in. And um, we had a conversation based around a lot of them. And I found it to be very, 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 very enlightening and fun and cool. And she was great. And thank you, Chloe. And now here is my conversation with Chloe Valerie. Thanks for listening. Okay. I guess you could say I'm a cultural critic, and at least I consider myself a cultural critic. I'm an entrepreneur. Also, I, I'm very interested in art, both in producing it and in talking about it. So I'd say those three things yeah. sort of sum up who I am. And it covers a lot of ground. And you, first off, I feel like we should talk about the theory of enchantment, because I feel like that sort of opens up a door in a conversation about sort of greater complexity in general and critical thinking. And, and, and um, if you want to just talk about that a little bit, and then we can just jump in and, and start with that. Sure. So theory of enchantment is both a philosophy that I developed um, about two years ago and also a startup that is essentially selling a curriculum based upon the philosophy that I developed. Um, if I could, sum up the theory of enchantment using sort of like, I don't know, maybe one sentence, um, if that's possible, <laughs> I would say that the theory of enchantment is essentially um, basically about human change, human beings changing and understanding the science of human beings changing. Um, it's, the realization of, or it's the discovery of the fundamentally redemptive quality of the human condition. Um, and so what, in terms of the curriculum, what a lot of people study is the true stories of human beings changing. So when I say human beings changing, I mean like transforming and engaging and undergoing radical change. So like former members of the KKK deciding to leave the movement, mm. right? So like things like that. Um, but, the, but in addition to these stories being emotionally compelling and super heartwarming, um, what's also cool about the philosophy of the theory of enchantment in terms of teaching people about the science of how human beings change is that it uses pop culture as a major source of, I guess you could say, as a pedagogy to teach mm. these things. Mm -hmm. So in addition to teaching about real-world stories, it also teaches the archetype of human change, as it is found in, say, sources like Disney movies and Nike ads and a lot of the pop culture influencers that we gravitate toward in terms of celebrities and musicians and artists. 
So the theory of entrainment curriculum shows how the pop culture piece actually correlates with real world experiences. Um, so in terms of the startup, it's a full curriculum. So it's a 25 lesson curriculum. Um, uh, and it teaches in addition, you know, to that basic philosophical statement, it teaches social emotional learning and, uh, human complexity and dealing, being able to deal with your emotions and things like that as human beings. But the idea is that schools, especially high schools would license the curriculum and implement it in their, you know, maybe their health and wellness programs or mm. maybe in their elective programs. Um, and it's a really important piece for high school students, especially because we're seeing mental health issues arise. Um, in America with regard to that particular cohort. Um, but in addition to being good for high school students, it's also good for adults. So I've used this curriculum to train the FAA, for example, the Civil Rights Department of the Federal Aviation Authority. Mm. Um, I've used it to train members of uh, staff and WeWork. So I've used it to train companies and also government agencies. So it's really for people, I would say, 13 years old and up. Mm. Um, but it's good for both young people and adults. All right. There's a lot in there that I want to get to, but I think first, sure. first off, I'm curious actually if this sort of came together in your mind in, in, did you see, did you see, were you looking out and thinking there's some sort of like, um, grander, I guess, narrative or as you put it, theory that people sort of are specifically in need of now? Because when I, when I, when I read about the theory of enchantment, I, I think about it seems like a very, very apt response to many, many things going on in the world. And I'm curious if a lot of it w was derivative of that or has this been gestating? Just Is this just you and who you are through and through for as long as you can remember? Or is this sort of some kind, somehow also a response to things that you're seeing happening in the world that you think makes this a sort of necessary and important thing to put out there? Yeah, I think this was gestating for a long time, and it just so happened that uh, I think it's both like I'm a product of my environment, mm -hmm. right? And I'm a product of the, the day, the zeitgeist. Right. But it definitely wasn't like, oh, like, look, it's a political era. Let me come up with this. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, it wasn't anything like that. So basically what happened was I was at the Wall Street Journal for a year. I was doing... Uh, work to combat anti-Semitism for eight years. And when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I was initially trying to do research on furthering combating anti-Semitism. And I had this aha moment that in the language of combating prejudice and hatred, there was no um, vocabulary around actually getting people to, or teaching people how to love. Mm. There's a lot of vocabulary around teaching people how not how to not hate, but there was no vocabulary, vocabulary around teaching people how to love. And I thought that that was interesting because people took for granted that those two things were the same things and they actually are not the same things. Right. They're very much interrelated, but yeah. they're not the same things, right? There's a lot of language about tolerance also, but there wasn't a lot of language about, or isn't really at all any language about love. Yeah. Um, and so what I thought to my, I thought to myself in the middle of this research that I was doing was, well, if, if I want to know how to create a vocabulary and a pedagogy around learning how to love, then I should start by figuring out if there are some set of patterns that can be distilled out of what people already love, which is to say pop culture, right? So the idea was like, can I study all of these or a lot of these things that are super prominent in pop culture, like the popularity of Beyonce or the popularity of Disney or of Nike? And are there certain patterns, certain stories that are being repeated mm. by these influencers and by these companies that reflect who we are and that reflect who we gravitate, what we gravitate toward? And can I then use that sort of hack uh, psychology um, in order to teach people how to love? So that was, that was like the beginning mm. of it. There's a little bit of more backstory to that, but that's also just like the elevator version. Right, right, right. Um, but, and so then after that, after I did the research, I like worked for a nonprofit for two years. And the majority of my work was speaking on college campuses about this new idea that I had. At the time, it wasn't a full-fledged curriculum. It was just a new idea. Mm. Um, but the new idea had three principles that I had designed. So I would like go on to college campuses and I would say, 
whatever conversation we have is going to be rooted in these three principles. Number one, remember that we are human beings, not political abstractions. Number two, remember that if you want to criticize, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy. And number three, root everything you do in love and compassion. And what I kept finding was that, number one, people on college campuses had not been given this framework in mm. the first place. And so they were sort of like hungry for it because they were insp- instead given a framework often, not always, but they were given a framework of like, um, enmity actually, mm-hmm. and not a spirit of generosity. So that was the one thing that kept, um, people liked it because it, it wasn't something they were used to hearing. But another thing was that, um, people, especially parents, would respond by saying, oh, well, you should just turn this into a full-fledged program, mm-hmm. to a full-fledged curriculum. And that's what really convinced me to, to you know, um, create a startup and create a full-fledged curriculum based upon the principles. Right. I think what led me to even ask that question is that it really feels, it feels two things in particular to me. It feels very... Well, it's very full and and nuanced, but it almost mm-hmm. – and I guess the second thing would be almost d- derived from that, which is that it runs pretty counter in, in, in the best possible way to a lot of what I do see out there. And, and, I, and, I, and it makes sense that when you would start – to me, it makes sense that when you would start introducing the idea around talking to campuses that, that there would be this sort of – I don't want to say surprising because a lot of what you're saying seems so naturally true, but it, it, it's, it makes sense that it would sort of create this possibility to shift a perspective that students hadn't really been given before. And I'm curious if you have any, I, you, you mentioned this sort of coming from this place of almost en, enmity. And I, I'm curious as to where that, that for them might have where does that start? Like, how do, how do, I guess what I'm asking is how do we develop the framework that is not what you are proposing? And, and how, where does it come from that this, this almost pre-existing idea that the theory of enchantment sort of rubs up against and sort of pushes back against? Because when I look out at the mm-hmm. world and I see a lot of the dialogue, I mean, especially in a place like Twitter, which unfortunately I do spend too much time on, it just runs very counter to what you have to say. And, and, and I'm curious as to where that counter even sort of comes from the root of that. I, I'm, I'm curious as to what, because you, you see it so much. I, I'm curious as to what your take might be on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's like so shocking. I think it's part of human nature. Sure, yeah. Actually, to be super abrasive and to go on uh, really powerful ego trips mm-hmm. and to feel self-righteous. Uh, and, you know, have moral indignation on certain things. I actually think that that's probably the norm for most of human history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so I think that my proposal is actually the more radical proposal. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Even though, even though obviously there, that isn't to say that it hasn't had, you know, some sort of purchase in forming certain civilizations, especially in the West. Right. Um, this idea of like redemption at the heart of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly a very Christian idea, but, um, but I, I think that the current iteration on college campuses is probably a combination of, you know, old fashioned human nature mm-hmm. and also, um, for some reason, a, a kind of, um, a kind of directedness and deliberate, um, style of teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, on the part of certain professors in certain college campuses that actually think that enmity is morally justified mm. um, for, for whatever reason, you know, and I'm sure they have their reasons, but right. um, it's the belief that it's the belief that it's number one, it's morally justified. And number two, it's that it is the thing that's going to bring about social change. Right. And so I think that both of those things are uh, incorrect and we'll just have to see how the future unfolds to see which one of us is right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, and a lot of what you talk about has to do with specifically with the complexity of the human condition. And this is something I think about a lot, just broadly speaking, this idea that when I look out at the world, it it seems a lot like people have a very hard time 
feeling satisfied containing opposing thoughts within themselves, right? So I see that that sort of cognitive dissonance leading mm-hmm. to a, down a further path of just sort of that that sort of shapes who they are. They 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 reject that dualism almost. And I think what you're putting forth mm-hmm. is very much sort of maybe that's not the right word, but it feels like almost an antidote to that. Because what I when I read what you're talking about, it it feels like it's almost a reminder of the fact that you reading this, whoever's reading this, has this duality and and you carry these these opposing forces in your mind. And it's not just you. It is everybody. Mm-hmm. So we need to meet everybody at where everybody is. You can't just assume because I find that that is sort of the 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 key to to I think what draws me so much to your work, which is that it's this idea that the very first foremost thing we have to understand is that we contain opposing forces even within us, and 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 that is mm-hmm. something I think people have a hard time coming to terms with really because i think in 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 some ways they it appears that they think maybe that if they acknowledge the 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 one side then the other side can't be true but it just is true that we contain both sides of many spectrums within ourselves yeah and i think that that's why i think pop culture is so important in terms of teaching this and it's why i teach Kendrick Lamar uh, specifically to mm-hmm. teach that particular lesson that you just talked about because he explores a lot of um, themes like duality and, you know, interest. he's a very introspective artist. Yeah. Um, duality and complexity in, within human nature and the human condition and recognizing that you're capable of being very good but also capable of being very evil and keeping those things in check. And I think it's actually very frightening for people to come to terms with the fact that they're capable of being evil mm-hmm. um, or being uh, mediocre, even let's right. not just let's not even make it that dramatic. But um, so I don't. I, I think that um, it's actually a very large task for people to to embark upon the journey that I'm inviting them to embark upon. But I also am arguing that the reason why they gravitate toward the artists they gravitate to in the first place is because they look up to these artists for doing that. And so I'm asking them actually not to make that much of a leap Mm -hmm. in terms of from, you know, engaging with certain, let's say, musicians, since we're talking about Kendrick Lamar, Mm -hmm. let's take the leap from engaging with certain musicians to actively internalizing some of the philosophies that these musicians are either talking about or wrestling with, struggling with. Um, Let's take that, let's take that seriously and not, and not, uh, engage with the music as merely a source of entertainment. So I think that the pop culture piece is meant is 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 essential and it's crucial because it's actually very difficult for people, myself included, to come to terms with and deal with the duality that you're speaking about. Yeah, definitely. Same, and also same for me. It's extremely difficult, but it it, it does feel like a centerpiece of of the work that you do. And another, speaking of centerpiece of the work you do, you talk a lot about stories. You talk about narratives and mm-hmm. stories, and um, I also uh, – I'm a writer. I'm a screenwriter by trade. That's what I normally do, and I know you sort of have a background in uh, – you went – didn't you go to film school? Like at fir- like you uh, you first started going to college, and you were a film student, right? So, yes, I, I went to a school, a high school very similar to the high school in um, Fame where I went to a regular high school for half a day and then I went to a, a art school for the remaining half. Oh, so shit. Film and screenwriting. I'm jealous. And then I went, <laughs> thanks. Well, it was, it was a great experience, but, and then I, then I went to, um, I did major in film initially, then I switched to international studies, but yes, yeah, screenwriting was actually my first love. And so I think it's interesting how story came back to me. In a right. different form in terms of my career still. Right. And it, it being a foundational sort of, I mean, I think that that is, as someone who tells stories and is interested in them, I think that this idea of the grand narrative and living with or without it or mythology, however you want to put it, is a very interesting one. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I've noticed you talk about it sometimes. And there's this dialogue. Yeah, I started talking about it more lately. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that, and and it it, it, it yeah. deeply interests me because I, I, I think when I was young, 
I had this very like fuck you attitude about it, and I was very much staunch, mm-hmm. staunchly atheist. And if you have some mythology that you adhere to, then you're fucking an idiot. But obviously, as one does, I grew out of that, and it's much. I have a much, I like to think, much more nuanced idea of it, and I feel like I'm, I understand the appeal, obviously, but I also understand the utility of them. And I'm, and I'm, I'm curious as to what you, where you are on that. Um, just, just broadly before we jump in on that. So, yeah, so I actually grew up in an opposite Like I grew up in a very religious home, Mm. but it was, it was both religious. I like to say it was both Orthodox and rebellious, which is a paradox. (laughs) I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian home that didn't practice mainstream what's considered to be mainstream Christian, um, I guess, rituals. Mm. So I did not grow up keep observing Christmas. I did not grow up observing Easter. I grew up observing um, like things like Yom Kippur and Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah. Oh, wow. Um, but, so it was, like, it was like very similar to Seventh-day Adventist, if mm-hmm. you're familiar with yeah. that denomination. I am. Um, but, but what that did was it created a... It, the, the power of story was very much, um, you know, impactful and and prominent in my life, mm-hmm. and in the way I saw the world, and in the way I, um, in the way I categorized from a moral perspective, human beings and put labels onto people. Um, but it was also so that was sort of um, it was that was sort of the I don't want to say bad. Mm. Um, implications, but it was certainly problematic mm-hmm. um, in certain ways. However, it was because of its rebellious nature, because it was also rebellious, it taught me critical thinking. Mm. So because it was rebellious against something that was mainstream, it taught me um, to think about the origins of things. Like mm-hmm. One of the reasons why we didn't celebrate Christmas is because we were always talking about the origins of Christmas and stuff like that. Right. And so what that gave me was actually a very much, a co- ironically enough, a cosmopolitan mm-hmm. worldview. Because although I was aware of, I was, I was aware of like myself as like, I don't know, a 17-year-old kid in New Orleans, mm-hmm. but I, in a way I was, I was more aware of like ancient Rome Mm -hmm. and I was more aware of ancient, you know, Persia because of the way I grew up. Right. Those, those, the idea of those things and the idea of those places loomed larger and had a greater pull on my identity than necessarily the present. Um, and so I think that that was a gift actually. Right. It it expanded my horizons and it expanded my sense of time Mm -hmm. and my, and my sense of place. Um, but I felt that the story was has been with me from the very beginning. And then in college, senior year in college, there was like this this paradoxical moment where I realized that a lot of my preconceived notions about people were wrong. Um, and that sent a very sharp jolt through like emotionally through my body mm-hmm. because and this goes back to the whole like the whole piece that I believe which is true about human beings, which is that it's a very terrifying thing to discover that you are, you have been wrong about the world. Yes. Um, and that perhaps the people, people who you love very much, people who are very close to you are also wrong about the world. It's a very, very difficult thing to, 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 um, to wrestle with and mm-hmm. reconcile. And so what happened was I grew up in a very conservative home and I took a class in college that was taught by a very liberal person. And I had always, I had automatically from the beginning put her in a certain box because of that. Right. And the, the class was on like anthropology of religion, uh, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And there was this one, there was this one moment where she as a religious, secular, or excuse me, as a, as, a, as a liberal secular person started to defend religious communities mm. to an atheist in the class who was super like not with it. Right. And it totally messed me up because she didn't, she wasn't performing the role I had ascribed to her. Right. Uh, she was right. She was defending a community that I had related to. And so it, it was a paradox and it totally messed me up. It totally messed <laughs> up my sense of like uh, identity and order in the world. Right. Right. And that's the other thing that human beings can't deal with. Yeah. Is chaos. True. Um, and so, but that was both that, you know, led to what I love what Brene Brown says when she's called something like 
is it a, a mental breakdown or a spiritual awakening? So it was like both mm. of those things at the same time. Yeah. Um, and that, that didn't make me get rid of story. It just made me, uh, it transformed my understanding of story and my understanding of archetype. And that led to the journey that, you know, has led to where I am today. Right. Uh, there's this, I hear a lot about, and I feel like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of ongoing, long-standing debate about whether we we as humans are sort of wired to seek. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're wired to seek sense, make sense of things, but mm-hmm. specifically wired to uh, seek a, a a grand narrative about all things, to make sense of the all of everything. And I I remember when I was young, I. I forget which book of Freud's, but he has, it's on the very first page of it. And he talks about this oceanic feeling that religious people have, that, that everything is sort of bigger than them and that they're all a part of one bigger thing. And he talks about specifically how he does not have that. I also Mm -hmm. do not have that. But I think as I've gotten older, I've, I've just, I've seen so much more nuance in why people believe things and why people believe all kinds of shit that may or may not be true, but they do it to get through the day. And I mean, religion is just the big, big, big framework of life, but we all have the little ones, the little lies that we tell us lies, whatever you want to call it, stories that we tell ourselves to, to make sense of every little moment. And, and I think that to see that in a microcosm version sort of helped me understand it in the much bigger sense, you know? And I think that now I, I, I almost gladly throw my hands up and say, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I just don't – I can't possibly know. I certainly can't know what it's bringing to your life, good or bad. So I don't know how to sit here right. and tell you what's true, what's not true, what to think, what not to think, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, well, What's yeah. the mi- micro story that you're referring to well, for I just, yourself? Yeah, I mean I just think like uh, – well, for instance, I <laughs> – this is a good one. Okay, so I I love I love 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 dogs, right? And I yeah. I have two dogs. I've always had a dog in all of my adult life and I this an an ex-girlfriend of mine and I were taking our dogs to drop them off at the at the groomers, right? And uh mm-hmm. or not sorry, sorry. We were going out of town and we were we were boarding them and we dropped off the dogs and and she was like she was like she had never, one of our dogs was, was young and she, we had never left it and she was nervous about it. And I was, I was like trying to, I mean, I didn't know we had never been to this place, but I was like, this is what they do. They're pros, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So we're there. We're talking to the guy that runs the place and he's, he's like, uh, she's talking about, oh, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? What, what do they do for food? And, and she, he's being very patient and all that. And, and then she says something to the effect of, well, they're going to miss me. They're going to miss me. And he says, mm-hmm. and he comforting her. He says, oh, no, no, no. Once, once he sees that I'm the one that feeds him now, he's going to totally forget you were around. And that, okay. that to me, I was like, oh, that, that's fucking great news, you know, because that means I don't have to worry about it anymore. We got in the car and my ex-girlfriend started crying and I actually didn't know why. And, he, and she, and she okay. was deeply affected by this sort of shattering of this idea that her dog loves her for only her. And not because she's her, his key to survival. You know what I mean? And, and it's this, yeah. th- that, that is just sort of an example of this like micro thing that we go through our lives thinking our dogs love us. Obviously, they do love us. But the root of their love could very well be the fact that we fucking feed them, you know? And that doesn't yeah. change the dynamic of their love. They still love us. But we have this mm-hmm. – I, I think – Anyone who has a dog and insists that it loves them, they have this idea that it's it's them and it's because it's them because that's how you feel about your dog. But the truth is you fucking feed them and that's where it all starts, you know? And I think that that's the kind of micro one that we live in. You know, we live in this world where our dog loves us for us, you know? And it doesn't matter that it's not true. It just – the end result is that they fucking love us, you know? But the, but I think that that's just like a, a small, tiny little version of, of, a, of a narrative that we tell ourselves to – helps us navigate life in a way that is smooth, I guess, you know, that avoids this sort of uh, cognitive dissonance that we were talking about before. Okay. Uh, sure, I get that. But the bigger, the bigger narrative stuff I think is, is 
endlessly fascinating to me. And you talked about having an extended sense of time. I think that mm-hmm. that yes. is a key phrase in, in all of this because you mentioned learning about history when you were very young. I actually – Yeah, it's yeah. actually quite exhausting by the way. Well, how, do you, how so? How, <laughs> because, how so? Well, it's very cool but it's also exhausting because what it means is, for example, in a political context, um, when someone is talking about something where it's obvious that their sense of time goes back to like – 1963, mm. maybe. In my sense of time, might go back centuries. Then I'm just, I'm just going to be looking at the issue from a different angle, from a bird's eye view, maybe. Totally. You know, so to speak, whereas they, they will not be looking at the issue, and their sense of, um, their sense of history will be limited, and therefore their conclusions will be sort of bracketed off or bookended by the timeline that they're in. Um, yeah. So we could just be talking at each other, not to each other, because we our sense of time is totally different. Fuck, that is so, so, so interesting and so true. And I feel like that puts into words something that has been rattling around, uh, unable to find the words for it. But that that is extremely true. And I think that that short view of history is is or long view. I mean, if you have two different views, it's it's that communication, whatever you're going to communicate about, it's it's let you're less likely to just understand one another because to a lot of people they think about fucking world war ii and that's like forever ago and i'm like that was yesterday you know that was like absolutely nothing ago you know and uh that's so that is so 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 significantly true i think i I think that that carries so much weight i i I find i mean i i I think to a fault sometimes I take the longest, longest possible view, like an evolutionary view. And I think that that mm-hmm. almost can trip me up as much as maybe someone who has a short, short view, you know, but to, to, to include yeah. or incorporate the whole breadth of history, not only requires you to take that extended view of time, but it requires you to actually know about history. And I think that that is right. a thing that is let the, that's the thing that's, that makes it less likely. I think people just don't really know that not, and I don't know if that's yeah. an education thing, but I just think that the short view of, 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 of time is sort of an effect of people just not having this idea of history, certainly not growing up with it, you know, as, as you did. Mm-hmm. I find yeah. that interesting. No, that, I think that's true. Yeah. You call it exhausting. That that's, that seems like the right word for it, for sure. I, I can totally relate to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not necessarily always, but sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I also you you mentioned earlier this sort of uh, when we were talking about the theory of enchantment, um, combating uh, extremism, maybe. And, and I actually interviewed yeah. Arno Michaelis uh, uh, oh, nice. a few weeks ago. You work with him, right? Or you have something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. We're working on a project to. Uh, to basically like preempt the extremist process by which young boys in particular get roped into a lot of uh, problematic movements. So oh. I just saw him last week, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> He's a great yeah. guy. Yeah, I really like talking to him. He's yeah. doing great work. Uh, what, are you, what are you, what is it? Tell me more about that. What, what, is, what is the program? What are you guys doing? Yeah, so we're working with uh, Parents for Peace, which already is a group that was started by a parent who's, son was unfortunately um, indoctrinated into following a radical Muslim uh, movement and ended up uh, shooting up a a military recruitment site, I believe in Arizona, and is now in in prison for life. But it was started by one of the parents to try to stop the process um, of that extremism. So I'm working with those people to co-create a curriculum that would be hopefully used in high schools and such to, again, focus mainly on young teenage boys. Um, so it would loosely be based off of my existing theory of enchantment curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have a lot of, you know, really great, amazing psychologists and, and um, you know, people with a lot of academic background in this um, on the team. So it'll be great to, to work together to develop this. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to be jumping around here because there's so much shit that you talk about that I want to that I want to get Definitely, to. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have in, in actually listening to a lot of uh, the stuff you talk, I hear intersectionality come up a lot 
with you. I mean, you, ha- yeah. you, you've, I've heard a lot that you have to say about it. I think here, I have a theory though. Uh, it's not as good as okay. your theory of enchantment, but it, it's, 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 the theory is that I think a lot of people don't even know what the fuck intersectionality is. And that includes, mm-hmm. pe- that includes a lot of people that are against it. And, 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 and that's not to say that if they understood it, they'd be more for it. But I think that people actually mm-hmm. don't know what it is. My sense, whenever it comes up, I think, I'm not sure that these people are talking about even talking about the same thing. So okay. can you define it for us before we even jump in about it? Yeah. I mean, intersectionality is both a legal term technically mm. and a larger philosophical idea. The legal term comes from the seventies when Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality was trying to describe the phenomenon by which a person who had uh, intersecting aspects of their identity not being recognized um, sort of like as being oppressed. So like if you were a black woman in the seventies and you could, there was a case where um, you could, there was, there was like, there was like stuff on the books that would protect you for being a black person and stuff on the books that would protect you for being a woman, Mm. but not both, Mm. not the ways in which they would intersect. She coined this term intersectionality to to describe that phenomenon. So that's that's where it comes from. Got it. Um, But it has morphed into a catch-all term, uh, a catch-all philosophy, rather, that has gone from describing that phenomena to um, ranking people based upon the level of intersecting modes of oppression that they have, um, or rather, ranking people according to the extent to which they are oppressed mm-hmm. by the various aspects of their identity that intersect in the workplace or in another fashion that they have. And unfortunately, there was some talk about, you know, there are some people who believe that we can separate the original term and its meaning from its current iteration. But unfortunately, what I've seen is that Kimberly Crenshaw herself has been involved in the current iteration, <laughs> the uh. development of the current iteration. So, from my perspective, I don't think we can separate the two. I will say, however, that a lot of people who believe in intersectional theory have the same goals and have the same, like, ultimately have the same objectives mm-hmm. as I do. Right. Um, they just, they just, the means by which they want to achieve it are often harmful, right. <laughs> to the least. And also, um, sometimes they don't have, sometimes we don't have the same goals, right. but by talking it out, we realize that what they had previously thought they wanted to achieve, they actually don't want to achieve. That's sort of like fleshing out what that would mean in a, in a society. Um, so it's like interesting, the combination of those things and right. how sometimes talking things out can make people realize that actually, no, that's not what you want. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Just, that, that's what just be a bit, really bad idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think just to, the way I think I naturally think about things like this as to there's the idea and it's this, ob- this objective idea that is outside of me that comes at me from the world and I examine it. But then there's also me thinking about how that affects me and the things that I deeply care about. Right. And I think, and I think about it um, and I've heard you specifically talk about this and this is really ultimately why I wanted to bring it up about how it, it could – the implications of it on something like the arts where the, yeah. the, 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 the siloing of the insistence that your experience is only your experience based on your identity and it cannot speak to – cannot possibly speak to someone outside of that sort of – it defeats almost – it doesn't – I was going to say defeats the purpose of, of art but it, it, it defeats the idea of art. You know, you can, if you can't transcend your own identity, if you can't speak to people outside of your identity and vice versa, then what is it that it is? You know what I mean? Like what even – it gets to like the very heart of what art is in the first place. And I think when I look at it through a lens like that, as you say, the goals – I share almost all of my goals with someone who might subscribe to intersectionality. But there's things like that that I just can't. I can't overcome that in my mind to be able to subscribe to it. Um, right. So part of the problem, I think, and I'm working on something. I don't know what it's going to end up being. It might end up being an essay, an article. I don't know. But I'm working on something about this. Um, I think part of this stems from the fact that 
2019, um, people are obsessed with identity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people don't actually know who and what they are. They don't actually know who and what the essence of, of their selves actually are. Um, and I think this obsession with identity is an indication of that. Yeah. It's ironically an indication that people don't know who they are. That makes sense. Um, yeah. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, if you trace back the origins of art, and this goes back to that whole historical mm-hmm. scope and being aware of history, if you trace back the origins of art, um, sort of like art in a formal sense or art in a civilizational sense, because mm-hmm. uh, we have to have some parameters here. Sure. You know, someone's going to listen to this podcast and be <laughs> like, but what about this? So from a civilizational standpoint, I would say art, as we know it today, its functions and properties goes back to ancient Egypt. Mm. Ancient Egypt basically invented the concept of art because uh-huh. they invented the concepts of the straight line and other such things that, that did not exist in mainstream fashion before ancient Egyptian civilization was a thing. Right. So obviously art existed, but art took, the form, took more the form of like, there's a lot of concentric circles as distinct from the single line and the single straight line and the, its use in the in the construction of the pyramids and things like that was a revolution in terms of art and art history. And mm-hmm. like if anyone wants to know more about it, I encourage you to read Sexual Persona by Camille Paglia, who um, you know goes through the, the the history of art from ancient Egypt all the way to Emily Dickinson. Now, I will say that from the origins of art in ancient Egypt. Um, the whole purpose of art was to create meaning and order out of chaos. That's, yeah. and everyone, it's interesting because like this great book by Ralph Ellison that I just read called Shadow and Act, even Ralph Ellison talks about that. He was very like Carl Jungian in his uh, writings um, about the purpose of art. And this is something that I subscribe to. That the purpose of art is to create meaning out of chaos and to create order out of chaos. So it is ironic that a lot of the stories that people tell themselves, which are attempts actually to create meaning out of chaos Mm -hmm. are fundamentally um, at odds with what you just described, Mm -hmm. which is the idea that I can, I can read a book written by a white man. I can listen to a song by a black man from Compton. Mm-hmm. And last time I checked, I am not a black man from Compton. of <laughs> Kendrick Lamar. And I can somehow see myself and my experiences reflected in those sources, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's, so it's ironic then that people are going through this like identity thing where it's like very, it's like a period of decadence um, in the West, I think. And it's a period of, um, a lack of identity. And so because of the lack of identity, people are scrambling for stories that are incoherent and that are really problematic, but that seemingly to them cr- would create order out of the chaos of their lives. When in fact, I think it's actually just creating more chaos. Right. Um, and that's how, and that's how you can tell a, that's how you can tell a timeless story. I'm actually thinking about this right now live. I think that's how you can tell the difference between the stories that will last and the stories that won't. The story that will, the stories that last actually create order out of chaos, and the stories that don't last seemingly create order out of chaos, but in fact create more chaos. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, totally uh, agree with that. It's almost like a there's a gushing wound, and you're just going to put a tiny little band aid on it. You know, is it it it, it, it the effort is to make it better, but you're not really going to help it, you know? And it, and it, that it's interesting just speaking of timelessness and, and, and what stays with us in terms of, uh, works of art and, and what might be enormously successful at the time it, uh, was released into the world, but then is very, very mm-hmm. quickly forgotten. I'm always, always, looking for the reasons why some things stick, even some things that are very unsuccessful when they're first released into the world that, that gain and gain and gain, and then they stick forever. But it's, it's always, I'm always interested in why that happens. This idea of timelessness, what is timeless and, and what sort of 
a human can can look at and see themselves in any period because there's something so deeply embedded in it that speaks to what it is to be alive on this earth, you know? And I think that um, mm-hmm. it's, I, I like to think I'm good at being able to tell what it is, but sometimes it's it, when you're so close up against it, when things are coming out in real time and you think, well, that might stick around forever. That's going to go away. You don't really know until there's some, 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 uh, some space sort of, sort of between uh, that, you know, when the thing comes out, up until like, oh, how the fuck did that stick? And then you start to look at it and you think, oh, well, there's this in that. There's this in that. There's this in that. And you, and of course, of course, that makes sense. You know, it speaks to something much wider and broader than just the moment it was made, you know. But yeah, I think I do think you have do you have an example of something you looked at as initially like, why is this sticking? And then over time, you realize why I think the one I think about the most actually is uh, is is Chinatown, Roman Polanski's Chinatown, because I. I think okay. of the movie and I think that's confusing. It's not, it's, it's kind of dense, you know, it's, it's, it's not, mm-hmm. a, there's not a lot of action and it has such a fucking depressing ending. So you, it's like, well, <laughs> people say they don't like those things. In fact, any, almost every audience member will tell you they don't like those things. And yet it's a movie that's been with us forever and obviously the director is not exactly uh somebody everybody wants to talk about right now but but the movie has stuck around in in the cultural consciousness forever and i've i've looked at that and wondered like what the fuck is that you know um and and it's it's a few things and i think it's about you know uh personal inner so this sort of inner rot and the and the and the impossibility of trying to change the forces that be and and sort of the tone that it's getting across i think there's a lot of reasons but i think it's interesting that you know when i specifically with that movie there was apparently there was some other ending that robert town had initially written and it wasn't as terrible as the one that exists Mm. as is and i i can't help but think or wonder rather if that ending was in there if people would even still be talking about it today you know and and it, it i think the ending specifically the the bleakness of that ending makes something like mm-hmm. that stick, you know, because it doesn't let, it's like a rock in the shoe. You can't get rid of it. And and it's not just to stick a finger in your eye. It's, it's, it's getting at something that's true, whether you want to look at it or not, you know? Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. something else that, that art can really do. You know, that we create these stories that through which we can look at things that we would otherwise have no desire to even consider, you know? Sure. Um, but yeah, that's just, that's just one example, but, uh, it, 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 it sometimes perplexes me, but it sometimes just makes total sense what, what sticks, you know, but sometimes I'm like, why the fuck is, mm-hmm. why the fuck did, why the fuck is Casablanca still such a popular movie? Like, I just don't get some shit, you know, but, uh, but sometimes it's on its face and it, and it does make sense. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the, specifically with with that with uh, the arts thing and 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 uh recently there was something with like what the fuck what was it it was scarlett johansson was had to like she was gonna play was it she was gonna play a trans man or something did you hear about this this was like she was gonna play uh probably in passing but not the details yeah she was gonna play a role a trans role and uh there was some big backlash that she wasn't trans, so she shouldn't play that role. The role should go to someone who's trans, which I'm all for giving wh- whatever, whatever you are, you get the role, you get the role. Who the fuck cares? But like, uh, she got the role. She's the one that, that got the role for whatever reason. It could be a capitalist mm-hmm. reason. It could be a creative reason, but she got the role. She's an actor. Mm-hmm. So you have to mm-hmm. l- that is that is the that is the art form you know you 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 are acting as someone else so to put a lid on yeah. on that in that way it just seems like it's it's it and i know that is just one example but that seems like that's not the kind of way we need to be thinking about the arts in general you know i don't think we can be we can cast or not cast people based on shit like that i i don't know it seems like a slippery slope i guess is what i'm saying you know well, I, yeah, I mean, there is an irony to saying that people should not be allowed to act, which seems to be the implication of the the argument. Uh, 
that was the source of the outrage. Um, I see, I see both sides here, I guess. I see, cause there are transgender, uh, I know that, that in billions, for example, there's the, one of the main characters is transgender and her character is transgender. Uh, actually she's non-binary mm. character, um, in, in billions. And that role is played very well. So I understand certain questions and arguments about representation on the one hand, but on the other hand, the argument in question does seem to sort of undermine the entire point of acting. So I don't know. But again, I don't know the full details of that particular. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if I can speak responsibly about it. I also think just to put a a pin in that one, I, I also think that what got left out of the conversation was probably the fact that getting a movie made is impossible and you need a movie star. And Scarlett Johansson was the first one that said yes. So really the real reason she was cast was because whoever the fuck was making that movie was like, Oh, we can make it now. We can get this $7 million to actually make the movie finally. Cause they're probably trying to make it for 10 years. But, uh, that aside. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you have a podcast, right? I do. It's called theory of enchantment. (laughs) It fits. It fits. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what you talk about this, uh, the, the, the last thing I think I really want to get into is this, this, um, supremacy is a pathology thing that you talk about that you've talked about that I think I I recently saw maybe on your Twitter account, possibly. Um, yeah, I want to talk about that specifically. Um, have you read, um, Sarah Shulman's conflict is not abuse. Uh, no. Should, would you recommend? That? I would, I would. She, she actually was a very, very early guest on the podcast. I was always, I was a fan of that book for a while. And when I decided to do this, I was like, she's one of the first people I want to talk to. She, she talks about, I mean, she talks about a lot of things and, and I think anybody who's listening should definitely, I recommend it to anyone, but she talks about suprem- the, the, the ideology of the, the supremacist and the, and the, and the, victim to sort of mirror one another. And I don't want to put words, uh, I don't want to presume that I would be able to, uh, make her argument as well as she can, but, but this idea of the, the, the framework of, of a, the supremacy mindset is sort of, sort of, uh, interesting to me and, and, and kind of more layered than I really thought it was. So, so this idea of supremacy being a a pathology, can, can you tell me what you mean by that when you say that? Yeah, I think that my ideas were very, very uh, much impacted by James Baldwin and a lot of his writings about um, racism in the 50s and 60s. His essay, The Fire Next Time, in The New Yorker made me really think differently about the way supremacy works because he would say things like, um, in a way, it is far worse for the racist white man who presumably loves his wife and loves his kids and yet his soul is so corrupted that he can, you know, take a gun and pistol whip a young black girl. Mm. Um, and he said that it says something, it, it, it perhaps says something about, you know, the, the, the fact that his condition is much worse than the person that he just persecuted. Right. Um, and also James Baldwin talked about a lack of sensuality um, in white America in the sixties, a lack of, an ability to be comfortable with yourself and to trust your instincts. Um, and also Ralph Ellison talked about this in shadow and act. Um, he talked about this being a product of the hyper bourgeois society that we lived in, the hyper materialist consumerist society that we lived in, which took away from our ability to be in touch with our instincts and to just, um, just tr- to trust our instincts mm. and to trust our feelings toward one another. Um, and, so a lot of this played a role in terms of shaping my beliefs on supremacy and, of course, my understanding of a lot of the psychology of story, which I explore in Theory of Enchantment Curriculum, mm-hmm. um, uh, has impacted my, my view viewpoints on supremacy. So what I used to think about supremacy was that it was just like – I only used to think of it in the political context. Right. Right. And and the way it would work politically and the political power that supremacist groups would try to um, achieve. And then I started studying a lot of 
how there's a lot of overlap between, for example, how the, 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 the ways in which members of the clan were talking and the ways in which many people in uh, Louis Farrakhan's group was talking and the fact that these groups had actually sometimes cooperated with each other yeah. to achieve their goals, you know. Oh, and also the fact that in The Fire Next Time, James Baldwin not only analyzes white supremacy, he also analyzes Farrakhan mm. and the Nation of Islam. Um, and ultimately rejects both. And what I realized was that there's patterns across the premises groups that tend to pop up regardless of what type of, the, you know, what the type of group actually is. Yeah. Um, and so the pattern is actually quite um, consistent. <laughs> it usually happens when someone is harmed or someone is, uh, someone perceives that they have been harmed right. and that harm totally like undoes their sense of identity and they need a grand story to bring back order into their life and to, you know, he- take away the chaos of their life. And the story that they adopt is a story that is outward facing, meaning it's not introspective. It's not, you know, it's not the, Oh, evil was done to me. Let me make sure that I know that I too am capable of producing evil. Right. And let me not be warped into that. It's more of a, there is this overarching source of evil in the world and I have to fight against it in order to bring back order into my life. Right. So it stems from, stems from harm and then harm leads to, uh, the real or perceived, it leads to an overcompensation or, or an overcorrection for the sense of harm that was done. Um, and then that overcorrection leads to, ironically, more chaos. So that's one path that supremacy um, sometimes takes, and that's sort of like the, the very distilled, dumbed-down version. Sure, yeah. Um, it also is, it's also often a product of overcorrecting for insecurity, which is why I teach in the theory of enchantment curriculum to acknowledge your insecurities and keep them in check. Because what often happens is someone feels insecure, then they become susceptible to being preyed upon by a supremacist group which promises them love and warmth and family and a sense of belonging. And so because they're lacking that, they join that supremacist group. By the way, there's a lot of overlap between the way supremacist groups act and the way a lot of gangs act, mm. um, like street gangs. Yeah. So they, so they become devoted to this group because they did not have a sense of belonging and home and community. The group promises them that, and so they give their loyalty to this group, and they're literally willing to die for this group because this group fulfilled a need for them that was lacking because of their insecurities. The funny thing, or the interest, another interesting thing is, to the extent that this works, this is like the pattern in real life. This is also the pattern of how like Disney movies explore supremacy, supremacy explores the theme of supremacy oftentimes, although it's very subtle. Um, it's not like there's a Disney movie about like, you know, the KKK. That's not <laughs> what I mean. But, <laughs> that um, wouldn't fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but tell but me like, about that though. Yeah, lot, yeah. If you look at a lot of the villains in Disney movies and the way they like prey on some of the heroes and prey on some of the characters, like it's the same thing. So like one of the things I teach it's about like the way exploitation works. Exploitation is often, often people allow themselves to be exploited because of their insecurity mm-hmm. and then they become exploiters. Yes. So like, um, so like, you know, in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Quasimodo is definitely exploited by, by the Vicar priest dude mm-hmm. um, who exploits his insecurities. Um, Ursula totally, like poor unfortunate souls is mm-hmm. textbook how supremacist groups and how gangs work. Mm. Like the lyrics in that song are literally verbatim, the psychology of how supremacist groups and how gangs prey on um, weak people. It's literally verbatim. I'm going to have to listen um, to that song again right after we we get off of this here. I'm going to have yeah. to listen to that shit, yeah. Yeah, check out that song. And check out the original. Don't okay. check out the version of the Jonas Brothers. That's stupid. Check out the one of like... Look up Ursula singing that song. It's actually very creepy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very, it's very sinister, but that's how it works. Um, so yeah, those are just like a couple examples. You know, when Scar is trying to get Simba to like do some shit, he like, he actually preys upon Simba's like 
juvenile nature mm-hmm. as a as a young cub. Right. And he preys upon his like shallowness mm-hmm. basically, which is also similar. But these are just some of the patterns that pop up in terms of like the journey, the road to becoming someone who believes in supremacist mm-hmm. ideas or the road to, you know, if you're already in it and you're trying to exploit someone else. It's interesting in Toy Story 3, like the villain is also like, Lato Bear is basically like, has a perceived injustice happen to him because his, his like child accidentally left him in a park. Right. And then he like internalizes that. And then he's like, no one loves you. And then he like, he like takes over the daycare and exploits everyone and um, becomes this crazy person. So yeah, it's like a pattern. Right. And I can, because I've, because I like train myself to like look for the story. Uh-huh. It's crazy. I can spot the pattern a mile away. Yeah, that makes spot sense. Spot it a mile away. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got a, a pattern recognition is off the charts for you in that. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's I, I I about it's, here's something I think about a lot, and and it, I think it, I think it applies to this too. This this any kind of supremacist ideology, one would think. It, I mean, at least my, my first thought, I think, in, is, well, it seems harder to be a supremacist now about anything because you can look up anything almost always and just find many different looks at that thing. You know, you can, if you have access to the internet, you can Google any subject and find every possible opinion on that subject. And it could possibly crack mm-hmm. your mind open to another perspective, which to me seems like it would be steering one away from that possibly but also i think there's also this siloing thing that you that you can really do and i and i know arno talks about this a lot too this siloing of of just just letting in the things that you already agree with this might be a supremacist ideology or whatever and that can almost entrench you further and further now and i'm curious as to if if you are seeing now in this moment are you seeing this uh, is there is there one is there a way that it's going i mean are people in in your eyes are people becoming more and more do they are they leaning more and more to those towards this radicalization sort of possible supremacy ideology stuff or are are people sort of leaning against that because i think now it's easy to have it be skewed because i think on a place like twitter it seems like the world is the most fucking hateful place it's ever been, you know, but I, th- I, I get confused a little bit about the, the trends and directions of these things, because I, I think I just don't know where to look and, and how to read the tea leaves on such, on such a matter, you know? Yeah, I think that, I think first of all, that a, in, um, a, a growth in supremacy, um, ideology mm-hmm. in a society is what, naturally follows a breakdown of healthy identity formation. Yeah. So the two are interrelated. Yeah. I think the obsession, the obsession with identity and the proliferation of supremacist thinking makes sense. Right. As like two trends happening simultaneously. Yeah. Um, I'll say that for, for starters, I don't know if like, it's like there's more per se. Mm-hmm happening in terms of the proliferation i do think that twitter has this like broadcasting effect and so that might skew our reality right um but perception is reality which is something that like i feel like arno said at this event that i just saw him speak at um and so there's this question of like well it doesn't matter if it's not reality if people think it's reality then does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy right so i don't know i haven't seen the statistics to answer that question, I will say that people are not like these logical people. First of all, people are not logical and nor is it desirable that people should be logical. And what I mean by that is Jonathan Haidt's book, there's a book called, uh, well, several books. One of his books is called the happiness hypothesis. Yeah. Another book is the righteous mind. And I think he successfully proves that logic is actually a, um, a slave of the emotions and not the other way around. Yeah. So we typically like to think that like, like there's emotions and then there's logic. Use your logic instead of your emotions. But that's actually not the way human beings are wired. Mm-hmm. That's not the way the brain is wired. The brain is wired in such a way that like emotions 
emotions are actually in control. The logic is the slave of the emotions. And so, um, you know, uh, I think it's important to keep that in mind when we think about like the way human beings, whether or not human beings are more likely to like go search for things mm-hmm. that are, that don't, you know, uh, support their preconceived notions. I think that because human beings are wired for story, the key to fighting against supremacy and the, the key to fighting against extremist movements is to find alternative stories that we can then tell to people or teach to people or, you know, encourage people to, um, to identify with. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like asking them to be purely logical, which is not a thing. And by the way, if, if, if you're, if, if you're the part of the brain that produces feelings isn't working, that means you're like, um, like a psychopath, Yep. right? Emotions are a healthy part of the brain. They're supposed to be used in terms of helping you to make the right conclusions and to form, you know, just the right structures about the world. And, and if your emotions are off or if, if they're just not being used, and that's also a problem if you're like a purely logical being. Right. So, I don't know if it's growing. I do know that we need to tell better stories and we need to tell people, we need to give people better interpretations of stories also um, so that they can, so that we can, as a society can, will be less likely to fall into these ideological traps. And I think that the more we have people pursuing that, whether in the art world, whether in the political world, I think our society and our country will be better off. I could not, possibly agree more with every word you just said uh i i your your work actually reminds me of jonathan's um i must say and i've i've had that thought more than once i love jonathan i love your work chloe thank you so much um i don't know if there's anything you want to plug before i let you go or anything like that um but feel free to do that now yeah go for it I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, if any, if there are any educators, teachers listening, or people in the workplace who want some cool training um, from a very new and exciting framework, let me know. You can go to theoryofenchantment.com, which is my website, and you know, request some information, which I'm happy to send to you. Also, I am finally working on a book about the theory of enchantment, which will probably take a very long time, <laughs> but. Uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, it be in the works, you know, in the next uh, couple months. And by couple months, I do mean like two years. Of course. But still, go start, start somewhere. So be on the lookout for <laughs> That's that. the writer's timeline. Yeah, exactly. It'll be done in two, three months. Yeah, that just exactly. means two, three years. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I can't wait for that book. Chloe, thank you so much. And hopefully I'll talk to you soon. And yeah, I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chloe. Bye. Bye.